Today's episode is brought to you by, yep, you guessed it, SipTequila.com, the number one curators of boutique sipping tequila, shipped direct to your door. Great tequilas, a great selection, and the best customer experience around, SipTequila.com. Okay, now let's talk about a brand that you can go and purchase on SipTequila.com. Could you imagine being from the same family who's responsible for bringing tequila to the United States? Hearing story after story about the men who came before you and the impact they had on the industry. For my guest today, it doesn't take much imagining because this is his actual family. With his desire to produce the best tequila he can and honor his great-great-grandfather, great-grandfather, and grandfather, Guillermo Erickson Sousa is doing just that. We're going to learn a little from the past, but the focus is on today, as Fortaleza is as good as it gets on this episode of The Agave Social Club Podcast, hosted by me, Doug Price. Welcome to the Agave Search Club Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Price. Big episode today. I'm here with the man, the myth, the legend, Guillermo Erickson Salsa from Fortaleza. Guillermo, welcome, my friend. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Guillermo, it's hard to jump right into Fortaleza without looking back at history, as your family tree has really played such a large role in tequila. Your great-great-grandfather was Don Sinobio Sousa. In the late 1850s, he travels to the town of Tequila, and he starts working for the Cuervo family and learns to make, back then it was like a mezcal tequila wine. Is that correct? Well, he was born in the 1840s in a town just south of Lake Chapala. So he was here when he was about 16. So he was here in the 1850s when he got here. And yeah, he started working out on a hacienda from what my knowledge is, because I certainly wasn't around when he was around. But my knowledge is he went to work on a hacienda, which was named San Martin, which he ended up buying some years later. And he worked for the governor at that time. But that's really where he got his start. I mean, he really started falling in love with what will become tequila years later. Yeah, from my, my grandfather had written a, had a had a book written too about the history of our family, which goes through a little bit of his life. But I think many haciendas at that time had small what they would call tavernas or many taunas. Uh, town, as you know, is a crushing stone. Many haciendas had that because if you can imagine, there was probably 4,000, 5,000 people in the whole valley here at the time. Today, there's probably 80,000. The haciendas were very remote. This was before the land uh, redistribution. So you were out on these haciendas and there was no electricity. And you pretty much, if you're, there was a lot of stills because people, what could they do is they, they had agave and they could make their downness they could produce and actually on that ranch some very old rooms of where they were where they were crushing and distilling on that hacienda san martin it's called and then i read in the 70s in the 1870s he purchases la antigua cruz the old cross is that correct that was one of the oldest registered distilleries where he he starts he renames it and he starts salsa tequila company which starts that rivalry with cuervo is that accurate when back then when he bought that distillery well yes he put the salsa brand name in 1873 or at least that's what my grandfather has down in the historical facts that 
They started in 1873 with the brand name Salsa. And that was around, I mean, 1873, that was when he started exporting to the U.S. Because, I mean, there's a lot throughout your family tree. There's a lot of firsts. There's a lot of really, really foundation of tequila where he's the first to export. Wasn't he also credited for being the one that really picked Blue Weber Agave as the best agave for making tequila? Yes, I've read that because many times on Haciendas, they would use whatever was available. I remember back when I was a kid, they were still using an agave called sanguine, which is a little bit sweeter and a little bit greener and taller. But they would use that because it was had more bricks content, if you if you may. And my grandfather had planted that all around the house at that point. This is back in the 60s. So but yeah, I think think he was probably credited with a lot of first. Back then, they were also doing a lot of earthen pits, and and he was introducing steam cooking as well. I think I saw. I mean, I know I know it was a long time ago, but they they did credit him with with a lot of things that really set the foundation for tequila. Yeah, certainly certainly a lot before my time. I remember the, the the thing here you had was that it was hard to get steam boilers in here until the train came through. Okay. Once the train came through, you could get extreme weights in. And that was 1903 when the train line finally came here. So if you were moving a boiler, which, you know, it might be three or four tons, I think those started coming into use once the train came in. You know, I just know how it was to be able to move four tons with horses, you know, it's very or mules or oxes, but uh, very tough to do. But yeah, the, the conversion to steam boilers and brick ovens and then, of course, the conversion to roller mills, because roller mills were very heavy to bring in also. And they were using the roller mills for sugar, sugar cane, and they adapted them for agaves. And those came in around the turn of the century also. From what I saw throughout, you know, 1880s, late 1880s, 1889, he continues to, to purchase different distilleries. And, and he's planning, I read, over 2 million agaves and, and really establishing himself as a tequila producer. Yes, he did. He ended up buying seven different haciendas. This is before the revolution. So I think when he died, he died in 1909. He had about 70,000 hectares, which is 2.6 acres per hectare. So it was a lot of acres. And he had purchased uh, one ranch for every one of his children or one hacienda for each of his children. And he passes away in 1909 and then the revolution comes in 1910 and then the expropriation of lands reducing every single hacienda from 5,000, 10,000 hectares to 100 hectares if you had water, 200 hectares if you didn't have water per family or per owner. And then his son, Don Eladio, he takes over in 1909 once Sinobio passes away and, and he continues to, to grow and he's buying distilleries. And eventually that, that also gets to uh, your grandfather, Don Javier, correct? Yes. My gra- great-grandfather would be Don Eladio. He was born in 1883. He was born here in the town of Tequila. And that's where in the house where we have the museum. He died in 1946, so he died about 10 years before I was born. So I didn't get a chance to meet him, but he was a very uh, business-type guy, and he was credited with the first radio station in in Jalisco. Okay. And so he was in doing other things, not only the tequila, but he grew the tequila business also, was very successful at launching other projects from that, too real estate projects and so forth. 
And then, you know, we fast forward to that point. He said 1946, Don Javier, he takes over the brand. He continues to grow it. And again, just like that, the, the first, he's plays a big role in the denomination of origin for tequila as he, I know that didn't get recognized until, until much later, but he really was a catalyst for that. Well, yes. And he, he took over in uh, 46 and really grew the company. I think most of Sousa's growth was after 46 when my grandfather took over. He okay. had been to school in the States. And as you know, the States is the biggest market for tequila. And that gave my grandfather, I think, an advantage of understanding the American market and understanding how to market to it and working through the prohibition era rules that were left over. He, the company was continually growing. And I think as a kid, I certainly didn't. You don't have that time perspective. But today I look back and I see project after project after project that my grandfather had. I mean, the, the company was never like, okay, we're going to build build this and that's going to be it. I mean, it was always just growing. I, I'm going to guess he was growing between 5 and 10% a year, year after year. Wow. And as you know, high growth, we've experienced that here at Fortaleza. And we've had yeah. that problem today of we're just about on allocation everywhere. And it was in that time. This is really where he purchases the land that creates that hacienda and small distillery, La Fortaleza. And he's bringing in these, these small traditional methods. And then was it around 1968 that he stops producing just because it wasn't, it wasn't as efficient and he wasn't able to get that volume out where it turned into that museum? Well, that's correct. I mean, I, I saw it as, uh, he didn't tell me this word for word, but I don't remember the distillery running as a kid, although, uh, you know, we were there, but I just maybe wasn't interested. I was just a young kid, but he closes it in 1968 and then mothballs it basically uses it as a museum because the distillery we, we have can, is a Taona, which can crush about three tons a day. But with a roller mill, a medium-sized roller mill, you can crush, you know, 30, 40. And I've seen some roller mills that do 50 tons an hour. Wow. So the roller mill can really crush and you can get a lot of volume. Now, you need a lot of space for fermentation. Let me tell you, because that's a problem we ran into too. As soon as you start crushing more, cooking more, it's all a chain. And so as soon as you say, okay, we want to up our volume, you got to be able to cook more. You got to be able to crush more. You got to be able to put more fermentation space up. And then finally, you got to be able to distill more. So it's all every time you increase volumes. But back to the point, my grandfather closed in 1968, the distillery, because it's just too inefficient. You can imagine a small roller mill will do like 15 tons an hour. And so he had a pretty large roller mill over there. So and you're doing three tons a day. Well, that's not going to. You know, it's just the efficiency. And, and I don't think at that time there was a big demand for Taona crushed. You know, it's like going back in time. And I don't think there was a demand for tequila made like it was 100 years ago. You you just didn't have that demand out there. Uh, today, there is a demand for that style of processing. Yeah. More and more brands are going back or going back to Tahona and, and to get back to it because they've seen how the demand is so strong. Yeah, I think they, you know, frankly, they see our see us and who are these people on the shelf? <laughs> yeah. And the, and the big companies kind of get mad. Why is Fortaleza on the shelf and that bar and and our brand X is not on the shelf? 
And so that's something that's dragging a lot of people that way. But I, I also think there's, you come to a distiller, you can see for yourself. I mean, we only have one way of making the tequila. We don't have two or three different ways of making it. And so everything that we make is made in that process. We don't buy our tequila from anybody and, and we don't sell it to anybody either as a contract. So we don't do either of those things. Everything that we make is there. So there was a market for that that I sensed when we started the year 2000 to fix the distillery. So just just going back, you're, you're 20 years old. It's 1976. And your grandfather sells the brand after, you know, it's had some phenomenal growth there. What, what did that do? I mean, because you were, you were around. You were like, what did that do to oh, your yes. world? Yeah, I mean, what did that do to your world once he decided to sell that? Well, I, had, I was in college at the time in San Diego. And, and I thought that, you know, one day I would run Tequila Salsa. But I don't think he, my grandfather, I don't think he could wait for me. He was, he was in a hurry. He had an opportunity there and he, he took it? No, I don't think it was more of an opportunity. I don't think it was an opportunity at all. I think he okay. looked at it as the lesser of two two evils. His, his son was more, my uncle was more named after my great-grandfather, was more uh, into artwork and was not into the tequila business at all. And so I think my grandfather was was extremely worried about who could run the run the company, who who would be able to get it to the next generation. And I think he may have been uh, somewhat worried of what the succession would look like. And okay. I think he was starting to get old. He was starting to feel his age, and he was starting to feel a little bit maybe of forgetfulness. You know that kind of those kind of things that happen to people when they get into their seventies. And he was definitely worried. And so I think it was one of the lesser of two evils of why he sold. So so you go to school, you finish school here in the States, and, and you start working that career. I mean, you're working for General Dynamics, IBM, and then you, you start your own ERP implementation company, Enterprise Resource Planning, which I imagine, I mean, you're, you're working with companies consulting to better streamline all their systems. That whole time, were you thinking, I've got to get back, I've got to start making tequila? Were you battling, you know, that everyday job versus... Versus wanting to be in the fields? Well, it's a good question. And, you know, it's a, trying to start a tequila company, you're going to be competing with Diageo, which is, you know, the number one distilled beverage company in the world worth you know, 40 gazillion dollars. Yeah. Pernod Ricard. And, and so I was fortunate in many ways of getting into the consulting business and being able to work with IBM. I was very fortunate. You saw a lot of processes. And you learn from all of that. And, you know, you get to get a feel. But I, I know we were getting into a very, very competitive segment. And if you look there, you know, like 95% of the entire segment is run by big companies, big, big, giant companies. And you're competing against them. And you're trying to get on the, on the shelf. And you got to have a good value state to get on the shelf. And uh, yeah, to a degree, I was like, okay, how are we going to do that? Because I knew we needed quite a bit of money to get the distillery fixed, to get things up and running. And we were just fortunate that, very, very fortunate that we were able to do it on our own and we had no investors. We have no external money and we were able to get to market. And there was one point, Doug, where I, about 2010, 2009, that I almost closed it down because very, very difficult to market against the big guys. Yeah. In that time, this is, you know, good more than 10 years ago. I think the market has continued to go now towards small brands. Yeah. And there's a lot of opportunity for small brands with an authentic story. 
I mean, there's brands out there with a BS story that people buy, but there's a lot of opportunity for brands that have an authentic story as compared to 10 years ago and even further back. I mean, you have, I think this whole thing of the 100% agave probably started in the 80s, late 70s and early 80s when people started going back to 100% agave became a good tagline. And yeah. people actually look for 100% agave. And now if you look, I, I think the amount of 100% agave now is way, is exceeding the amount of, of tequila made that's a 51% agave. Yeah. And that market is dropping like a rock, the mixto market, as people get educated. So to answer your question, yeah, it was it was a long it was a long uphill battle. And did your family think you were crazy? I mean, was this something that they thought were they supportive? Was it they, they think you were crazy that you're going and and you're refurbishing and bringing this distillery back to life? Well, I, I didn't leave the job. I did both of them, and I would come down here. Sometimes I'd be down here for three weeks when we were running the distillery, and then I go back. So I went back and forth all the time. I mean, I was a frequent, frequent flyer with Aeromexico out of Tijuana, Tijuana, Guadalajara, which used to have five flights a day every three hours. Okay. So you had lots of opportunity to get back and forth. Oh, yeah. It was easy to cross the border uh, 15, 20 years ago. In fact, when my grandfather got sick, I was coming down usually once a month. And that was in the 90s and once a month or once every two months. Yeah, it was uh, it was a long slog. It was a lot of investment in time. Uh, don't ever let anybody tell you it's easy. I suppose it's easy if you make a contract brand because you just go in and make your deal with the with the guy that's going to make it for you, and they help you through the whole process. But that's not what we were going to do. That's not how we wanted to do it. And we 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 went through the school of hard knocks, repairing a 1903 boiler. Who would do that? But if you go buy a Use boiler would be 30000 anyways with all the cost to hook it up. So you just, if you're going to try it, we I think we rehabbed that boiler for about $5,000. So And it lasted till just uh, three years ago. It finally blew up. So it worked for about 115 years. It's not bad. And that first batch, that first batch of tequila that you get, what was that like? I mean, did you sit there and, and taste that and go, man, we're... We've done it. We've done what we set out to do, or was there tweaking throughout the process? But what was that first few batches like? Well, I remember we ran 10 tons. To We had the town all fixed and working. And we still had problems. There's a million little problems. And we cooked 10 tons. The oven's 15 tons. And we cooked 10 tons just as a test. And we pulled them off the property here. And I remember that when we were distilling and we tasted what came out of the process, we were like, wow, this is like, and nobody's making it like this anymore. Yeah. And uh, nobody was. In fact, nobody was doing town at that time. Some people had said they were, but nobody was doing town at that time. I mean, you knew early on that, that you had something special there. Well, when we tasted that, we said, I think we got something that we can sell. And we didn't even have anything to put it in. So we had to go get a bunch of these glass water, uh, 20 liter, we call them garrafones here, to put all the tequila in. And then we had to go make a stainless steel tank we bought a used stainless steel tank that we have and we still use it here somewhere for something it was like a thousand liters and so that's how we started we didn't even know where to put the tequila when we got it working and all of a sudden it's coming out and i think we had almost uh, 800 liters from that run and it was it was very tasty and uh, we threw some of it in barrels and 
lot one, you know. Yeah. I don't think we even filtered it correctly. <laughs> so you're you're making tequila. And, and we've got Los Abuelos or Fortaleza, depending on if you're in the U.S. or in Mexico. And, and I know there are some, some trademark issues with, with, a, with a rum company. You're Fortaleza uh, in the U.S. You're Los Abuelos in Mexico. We're going to get into this process of making this tequila. And we've talked a little bit. Guillermo, this is, I mean, you know this. This is as boutique and craft as it gets. Uh, walk us through this process of making, you've got two Blancos, walk us through making up to these Blancos. And, and then I'm going to, I'm going to taste, I've, I've got a, a new special Blanco that you released not too long ago, but walk us through this process for your Blancos. Of course, all of our products are 40%. So we distilled to 46%. And when we go to bottle, we water back with a little bit of demineralized water, leave them at 40%. Okay. ALC, even our Mexican brands, many people have gone to 38% here. Right. We still just do 40%. And then one day that many bartenders have been asking us for a still strength. So we brought out our 46% still strength. From the process is basically, you know, we take the agave, mature agave, and we cook it uh, for around 30 hours. That may have changed an hour or two because I think we found a way to get a little bit more efficient in that. Okay. Yeah, t changes happen now without me knowing. Once it's cooked, then we mill it in the town, and then from there we add water and we wash the fibers. From there we can drain it and then pump it up to the fermentation vats. And I have never seen this system at any other distillery until recently where we wash within the town. From there, fermentation, it's about three days and a half of fermentation. And then we go to distillation and copper pot stills, which is first passed, bring it to about 18% alcohol and second pass where we bring it to 46% alcohol. And then we'll store it in barrels at 46 or it goes into tanks at 46. And when we're ready to bottle, Blanco 46 gets distilled, at, uh, gets bottled at 46. And all of this happens on our property here and it's people can come down and tour it and see it in operation. I mean, it is a small, when we talk about small craft, we're, we're going to eventually talk about your land because the land is just, it's just magical. But the distillery, it is a small distillery. And I was there when the Tahona was going, the juice was there. They were, they were loading up the ovens and these guys were, they were working hard. I mean, there's like an uphill ramp that they were taking this wheelbarrow up to, yeah, to load it up there. During fermentation, you know, I got to climb the ladder and, and, you know, you've got these giant wood fermentation tanks and, and just see what's going on there. I mean, it, it really is a magical experience, but it is small. I mean, those guys, those guys are working hard to, to produce this tequila under your leadership. And it really is a, a really great thing to see. So we've got that still strength. And, and I know that back in the day, that was a bartender favorite. I mean, it, it really shines through in a cocktail, but I think... Up until, I mean, even the past couple of years, the, the at-home drinkers, they're really falling in love with this still strength. I mean, they like that little extra punch. It's not it's not too hot or anything, but that little extra punch. And so it, it's becoming a, a crowd favorite, not just a bartender favorite. Well, I think you're right, but I think it's I think it's the authenticity of it. Yeah. They're looking and said, this is right out of the still. And it's not a 50%. A 50% is just too hot. 55 Many, most of the tequila distilleries, their their true steel strength is 55, and that's way, just way too it's hot. hot. 46 just giving you a lot, a little more flavor, a little bit extra kick on it. And yes, I agree with you, but I think it's due to, they want to drink authentic. People want to drink like 
that program Moonshiners or something is very popular now. Yeah. People want to learn and they want to drink a small batch where there's an owner still around and uh, they want to drink that. They don't want to go to the corporate Goliath and see Disneyland, you know. Now, now there is a market for that, obviously, because somebody's selling, I think it's almost 24 million cases a year of tequila now. So, and it's certainly not us selling in the, you know, we're, t- we're, we're down there on the tiny, tiny, tiny. So, yeah, I talked to your son last year about how, you know, Fortaleza, you guys have such a, a loyal fan base. And, and there's this crazy, you know, FOMO or that brand loyalty that happens when you guys release something uh, some somewhat limited, uh, I, I've got your your lot 20s, and this is the Agaves de la Via, and this is a special run that you recently dropped, and you dropped this without any warning, like it was a new Beyonce album. I mean, all of a sudden it just hit the market, and everybody went crazy for this. Talk us through a little bit. Tell me about uh, what's going on with this, because I, I know these are Agaves close to you know. Th- again, this property is very special, but what's going on with this new lot uh, 20 for the Still Strength that you just recently released? Well, we thought. You know, we want to, we didn't raise the price. Our belief is we give a great product made the old way at a reasonable price for how we make it. When people come down, they're blown away. They say, oh my God, you guys really do it like this? Aren't you buying your tequila from somebody else and just putting it in the bottles? And no, we don't do that. So, you know, our motto is really to give, give people an authentic, handcrafted, I mean, as you know, there's some products out there that have used the name handcrafted that really weren't handcrafted. But when people come down, they can see this is truly handcrafted. And at a reasonable price, we're not selling it for $200 a bottle, though there are some people that do do that markup. We're not selling it for, you know, $1,000 a bottle. You know, it's just not a marketing ploy. And a blue collar guy just drives a truck and buy a few bottles a year. It's not out of his reach to, yeah. to buy authentic. That was our goal. And it, today it is. We have not done a price rise in the States since we've started. And we just noticed that every Tom, Dick, and Harry, if I may, has priced above us now. And we hadn't done a price rise. We did do one here in Mexico. Uh, we have a 53% tax on our invoice here. And so we took that into account now. And so we, we have had a price in Mexico. And the price ends up being a little bit higher than the United States because Okay. Uh, this 53% invoice tax for the Mexican government that nobody knows about. And so it really hits us people that are small batch, high cost producers uh, a lot harder than it does the volume producers, cost efficient volume producers. So, but that was behind the idea. And we thought we can give people a plus value by offering something that's unique where we have a special lot where we know where the agave, exactly where the agave is coming from for that lot. We can tag that. We didn't do a special label. We just threw a tag on it. And so it's a surprise. Yeah, it was a great surprise. Your, your house overlooks this property and these agaves were all from around, is it, was it right down that hill or around where your house is? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's bright. It's, it's fresh. It's green. It, you know, it's got that punch of anise. I mean, it's just so crisp. I mean, th- this is this is tequila and this is what i think your family was making or what they wanted to make and 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 such a beautiful story and like i said you dropped this people went crazy trying to find it i know there's a fair amount of bottles out so it, it is pretty readily available but it is something you know you've got that tag on it that people go 
I need to have this. And, you know, we eventually get into that when we talk about the winter blends as people just go crazy with it. We've got this Blanco. You do have your standard Blanco that dials back a little bit. And then we do head into barrels. Talk to me a little bit about the Reposado and what kind of barrels, how long that those are, those are staying in those barrels. Well, we kind of standardize on the aged expressions. We went with, as you know, you need to be at least two months in the barrel yep. to make a Reposado or in, or, or in a fat. If I'm not mistaken, you could still do reposado on a vat. And people do wood chips and all those kind of things that I guess it's legal to do. We, we don't have any wood chips, but, you know, to increase the volume of, of wood space, burned wood space to, to liquid. We just do the barrels and they're used American whiskey barrels that we chip out and we reburn and we can use them multiple times and then chip them out, reburn them again. Okay. We go six months for our Reposado. We decided that's where I like it. It's changing the Blanco product now. The only thing we add is the aging time in the barrel. We don't do any color adjustment. We've never used any taste additives, which are legal to use. Taste additives and, and or smell additives, we use none of that. So basically what comes out of a lot of barrels, which may be 20 to 40, maybe 50 barrels, will be a lot. And that's the color it's going to be, whatever comes out of those barrels. So you can have an occasional difference in a Reposado lot on the colors. And uh, some we get a complaint from people that really don't know. They just don't know what small batch means. Yeah. And, you know, they're used to small batch of a big brand, which never changes color. We did that on this six months. And, and I, I prefer the aged expressions. And I think everybody has a their own palate. We went 18 months on the Añejo, and as you know, our Añejo's, it's like a creme brulee. You like to live in that Añejo world, don't you? Yeah, I'm I'm in the Añejo world. That's what I usually drink all the time, and you know, after about six or seven Añejos, I'll save myself some money, and I'll drink Reposado. So... uh, Okay. Very conscious of that. Yeah. Yeah. This repo, I mean, the repo is, it's so well-balanced. I mean, the whole lineup is so well-balanced, but you know, there's still a strong agave presence. I mean, this is tequila. Uh, It's buttery. It's just so delicious. I I am out of your normal repo as, as a lot of areas continue to, you know, the supply and demand, the demand is always stronger and uh, higher than, than the supply. I do have uh, a special treat for me, which was a small sample of the mission 1530 Fortaleza a repo that you recently teamed up with Jason Krasno, which Mission 1530, and and just a great project there for the Tequila Interchange Project. And and I know that this was in, I think, Cognac Barrels. I saw this barrel in your barrel room. The repo lineup is just absolutely phenomenal. Now that's Stefano's project. So all I got to say, if anybody wants to know anything about that. Stefano and Kobe are the guys to to talk with. The winter blend and those guys wanted to do it. And I said, okay, I'm not involved. You guys pick your barrels. So my ambassadors handle that program. And if you ask me anything about what it's in there, I don't know. So even even the single barrels, because I've seen over this past year, I've seen a couple different stores come out with the Fortaleza single barrels. Is, is that all Stefano and Kobe and those guys that are really leading the charge? Yeah, absolutely. Those guys run the single. There's a waiting line for the single barrel program. Because uh, the way it has to be done, you know, we have to create an SKU every time. So, so I believe that they're, any rate, it's, I think they're doing one single barrel per month. People okay. come down and pick the barrel and then they get what, what gets bottled from that. But those two guys are uh, pretty much handling that. They enjoy doing it. I'm, I'm more 
You know, I like my six-month reposado and my 18-month añejo. <laughs> and I want to keep my life simple. What well, shows, I mean, it shows you trust them. You've got a great team. You, you'll be the first one to say it's all about the team. And uh, you, you've got a great team. And those guys, they don't just work there. It's a part of their life as well. And, and the winter blends, you know, we've, we've had three editions of it come out. And I did see a WB22 there. And, and those yes. really, you know, going back to that FOMO... People just cannot wait to get the winter blend. So, so they're doing a, a great job with, with the Reposado program for uh, anything specialized. We thought it was a good idea to do a once a year, once a year product. And I, I think I, what came to mind was the Noche Buena beer that one of the beer manufacturers does down here every year. And they only release it during, during the holiday season. And so we thought, well, we need to do maybe something similar yeah. to that and have a winter blend. It's worked out well for you guys. Yeah. The demand has certainly been more than we thought it would be. And, and uh, unfortunately we see some uh, price, maybe price gouging where we've seen some prices on the retail site. We, again, we're trying to keep it accessible uh, to a guy driving a truck. You know, we, we don't, you know, we're not looking to sell a $500 bottle of tequila that have that value in it. We try to sell at a reasonable price that people can afford to have something made the old way. And then, you know, before getting into the Añejo, for as much attention to detail that you're using on your tequila, you're showing that same amount of attention to detail on these bottles. This is one of the most recognizable bottles, a lot to do with this topper, or this, this pina topper. I've seen where this work's been done. I mean, there's a lot of people. It takes a lot of hands to, to make this entire process. You're telling a story with your tequila, but you're also telling a story on the neck label and, and on the actual bottle label. And I think it's just great. There's vignettes of, of each, each expression and each one. What was the thought behind that? I know you're on honoring uh, the three men that, that came before you, but a real special, just, just the story that you're telling with all of these labels that are all different. Yes. Thank you. That Well, one was, uh, we want the authenticity. So the idea was that on each bottle, like the Blanco bottle and the Vignette has the front of the distillery sketched on it. We had a great artist, Mark Cannon, just an awesome artist that helped us with this back when, when we were getting started out. The Reposado has a sketch of the inside of the Tauna, with the Tauna working. The Añejo has a sketch of the estate. And then the uh, Still Strength has a sketch of the stills with my dogs next to it. What, what our thoughts behind that, Doug, was that we wanted... It's an authentic product, and you can actually visit here. We, we have quite a few visitors now. Yeah, It's unbelievable how much tourism we're getting. But you can visit, you can see... It's easy to see. It's not, you know, it's not like a giant, as you said, it's a tiny little distillery. You can pretty much get to the town and from there you can see the whole distillery, both sides of it. So it stuns people. And then we, we, we wanted to make something authentic. My, my friend, a friend of ours, an architect who helped us with the top, with the design. Uh, he was the designer of it and how to make it. And it created a lot of jobs uh, for people and I think we got about eight people working on the tops now that are full time. So we're able to create, we have over a hundred employees here now in, in the town of Tequila. And I, I don't know if we're number three or number four in the town of Tequila. And we, we want to be, we, a number of employees will never be number one here, but but in total package for the employees, we want to be number one. I think we're right now number two behind in our total package for 
taking care of the employees in terms of a remuneration package. Yeah, there, there's a long line of people that would like to be working at Fortaleza. And, and you're doing a lot for the culture. I mean, when I was there, you know, we toured it that day. We got to spend some time with you. And, and then at night you said, hey, every, every, you know, every week or every couple times, uh, a couple times a month, I, I like to, to go ahead and invite the staff out. I mean, you, you are creating culture. I mean, I remember looking right when you walk in through the gates to the left, there's a security post and above it, it had a sign that this week's birthdays or this, you know, and, and I know you're not the one specifically right, you know, finding those out, but there is a culture there. There is a family there and people are, are very proud to be a part of the Fortaleza team. We are building a, a culture here. I mean, I learned from my grandfather. My grandfather had, I think he had over 500 employees at okay. the time and, and he was very well respected here. We still have people coming. They're very old now because they work for my grandfather and they, they remember when he put a lot of there was a depression here, or a recession, and he put a lot of people to work just building walls. So my grandfather liked to see people working. We when we were young, he would on Saturdays, okay, come with me, and we would have to go see all the construction projects. So my brothers and I, we we would have to ditch him on Saturday, get up super early to go horseback riding, so we didn't have to go see all the construction projects. But he built four schools here in the town. One of the schools he built with the other distillers and then three others he built by himself. One's named for my great-great-grandfather and one's named for my great-grandfather. And so I, I, I saw this, I suppose I learned from it. And we, we you know, we, what we want to do is provide people with good jobs and profit sharing, and a career, you know, that they're able to work. And I, you know, I wouldn't, I probably tell you that I didn't know we'd have, on my wildest dreams, I didn't think we'd have a hundred employees now, but we do. <laughs> no, you're doing it. You're you're creating that culture, and and like I said, there there are people that that are lining up to to be a part of this family because it's not just a job; it, it it is a family that that you've created there. So I mean, re- really, hats off to you because I mean, you're invested there. You're invested in the town there. It's a beautiful town. I've I've been there. I've walked those streets. It's a beautiful town, and and you really are putting a lot of people to work, which is a, a great thing. And then lastly, you know, we go through that Blanco those two Blancos, and then Repo, and we get to your Añejo. This Añejo, same process, everything same, just a little extra time. We go about 18 months, you said, for this Añejo, yes. and I know this is that sweet spot for you. Really, really delicious with this Añejo, and as you said, creme brulee, that caramel. I mean, again, that agave is still there. This is not whiskey. This is this is something I would bring to any whiskey lover, even with that Reposado. Absolutely. They really, yeah, they would really enjoy, but just a, a fantastic Fantastic in Yeho. And, and and that's about the closest thing we're going to get to the extra in Yeho is your lot 42 and 43A, uh, because those two lots actually do have a little extra in Yeho in it due to uh, yes. possibly a little bit of a, a, a little miscommunication. Well, like I said, in, in many times I've told many people, if you think that running a distillery is easy, it's not. Mistakes always happen. And, and at that point, we did have some extra in Yeho that we were going to bottle. We actually developed a label, extra in Yeho, a mistake had got mixed in with the Añejo. We were doing a blend to try and blend up. At that point, I think we had some 12-month-old, and I instructed the young lady to blend it up to 18 months months. So that means use X amount of extra Añejo to get the total months up. We never did a blend and that's the only blend we've done, if I recall correctly, and got all blended in. So yeah, so those bottles go for a lot. 
Uh, you can see how dark it is. And that cost us a lot of money, though. That was a big mistake. And my guys, you know, one of my guys had mentioned, well, let's throw the price up on it. But we didn't. We put it out there and it was just another surprise for the market that, you know, guys got a good deal. Yeah, I'm sure some people will sell their bottles like Lot 5 Reposado 2 was another interesting. I won't tell you what happened on that. Okay. But Lot 5 Reposado, I think they're going for over $1,000 now which is oh, wow. a production error, too, and in a positive way. Both of yeah. these were production errors in positive ways that we didn't expect. And sure, it cost us, it cost us some money. That's the way it is. We gave, we gave our followers certainly a, a, a pleasant surprise when they tasted it. I didn't, we didn't say nothing about it. We didn't, uh, on all of the chit-chat on the, online started. Uh, yeah, no special tag on them or anything. No, no nothing. And again, we would just, we want to... Our followers, we're not here to try and try and get the highest price we can get on it. We're not here to be the highest price tequila or be a tequila bottle with encrusted diamonds on it. And there's an annual reward for the most most people clapping at the same time or something. We're not trying to get the, some reward out of some magazine or we're, we're, we're just here to make. We make tequila the way my great-great-grandfather did. We make it in the, the old style, and, and we get a fair price for how we make it. And when people come, that's what they tell me. Oh, my God, you should charge more. Look, we make, we make okay. We're doing okay. We, we were able to pay our bills. We pay our employees. We're able to grow. We're, our, we're 100% family-owned. So we're, we're doing okay. We're very fortunate in that matter that we're able to compete with the big guys out there, which you know have access to 1.8% money. And if I go to the bank and ask them for money, they say, sure, how much you want? It's 15% a year. So, you know, you just, it's, it's a tougher situation for us. And, but we're, we're, we're okay. And that's, that's the experience we want to give. You're telling a story and I think nowadays more than ever, people want to be brought in on experience and you, I mean, if, if you go oh, yeah. to your distillery, I, I mean, it, there, there's an experience here in tasting this. And, you know, a, a few nights ago, I, I texted you, I told you, I had my brother-in-law in town and, and I'm letting him try, you know, I've got a lot of bottles behind me and I'm letting him try different tequilas. This is a guy who brought Mike's hard lemonade, strawberry lemonade to my house. That was oh, his, yeah. if he could go buy something, <laughs> that's what he purchased. The last thing I gave him was this still strength. And he said, that's the best one. That yeah. a little bit of pepper. I mean, he's not a tequila sipper, but he said, I mean, for, for non-tequila sippers to gravitate towards a Blanco is, is pretty rare, but he immediately saw and tasted flavors. Wow. There's something, there's, there's something different going on here. So, I mean, really, really special lineup. I mean, all of these are, are really, really special. Your team is working so hard to keep up with your demand. I mean, the demand is, is so strong. Because of the time that you're taking, the highest of high quality, it, it seems like, you know, there, there's always more demand than there is supply. You recently went to 24-hour, six-days-a-week shifts. I assume your ERP days uh, you know, streamlining has continued to kind of help. But what what has that transition been like? Because when we were on your property having lunch, you said, I never thought we would see tw 24 hours a day six days a week because literally when you're sleeping tequila is being made i mean that that's a, a lot of trust that you've given to your team well very true and and i never thought that we would work two shifts now it's three shifts and we had no idea we thought this would be 
little bit more than a hobby, you know. We would develop this brand and has a lot of authenticity to it, a place to visit and, you know, make a living. We never thought we'd be working three shifts. When we had to go to two shifts, it was amazing. And then and go to three shifts with Stone Crush. I mean, people think we're crazy when they come in and look at this. And we do rotate the shifts so they don't they don't get nights all the time, you know. But no, I had no expectations that we would ever be at that point where we did work two shifts uh, for a while, seven days a week. And uh, then we were able to uh, get a little more efficient. So we get three shifts in and we will not go back to seven days a week, which would increase our capacity about 17%. But uh, people need time off on Sundays. They want to be at home with their families. I mean, it's still a very family-driven town. So we close down on uh, on Sundays, even to tourism. We don't have any tours on Sunday. At the museum, they do, but on the Central Plaza. But at the, the distillery closes down. And I think it's best that way for right now. At least that's the way I feel today. And I don't change my mind too often. Yeah, we're very, very fortunate. We're, we're, we're very, very fortunate. We're a small brand that's been able to get where we're doing on our own slugging you know slugging it out in this market of competitors well i mean look you're you're not slugging it out you're leading the charge and and you're knocking out the majority of the other brands i mean you really are you know just thinking of that do you feel any pressure i mean do you do you ever feel any pressure to to keep this momentum up i mean you've continued to grow you're not cutting any corners but is, is there any any added pressure that you feel to continue to keep up with this quality and this pace because you you really are at the top of your game so, yeah, regarding the pressure, I think there is pressure in this because there's a lot of administration issues that, that you're trying to keep up with all the government regulations. And for a small distiller, it's very tough. I could get into details, but I don't want to bore you with that. But there are issues when you run a distillery. There's issues with neighbors and issues with some of the new requirements that they have for an old distillery. Everybody's been awesome for us the last 20 years to help us get going. There are some pressures, but to answer your question, you know, I'm older now and I'm fortunate I'm getting at that age. Most people would retire and I have no desire to retire. I do have a desire to to ride my motorcycle two days a week, you know, like Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays. Okay. Three days a week. And no, not like before. You know, we're just very, very fortunate. We have good cash flow. We have great distributors. We've only had like two distributors stiff us in all these years. So we don't have a collections process, which a lot of people, if you know businesses, that's where most people have the issues on the cash flow. And we don't have those issues. We're very, very fortunate. And we've had a fortunate time with a stable peso and pretty much a stable dollar too, so that we don't have those wild fluctuations in foreign currency, those kinds of issues that are surprises to people, devaluations, uh, those kind of things that my grandfather lived through. My grandfather lived through, I think, three devaluations. Uh, I mean, significant devaluations, which really create a lot of havoc in any business. So we're very, we're very, very fortunate. And I no, I don't feel the same pressure, but do I have a lot on my desk? I, I don't want to show you my desk. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's a lot there. Oh, oh no, I have to I have to find uh, I have a great <laughs> assistant now who's helping me get through it, and uh, we probably need three or four more of them because that's how much is on my desk. We're working on those kind of things, the procedures and pricing. Uh, she, you know, helped put a pricing 
strategy together and so those kind of things they do take significant time oh yeah there's a lot in the details i mean there's a lot of things in the details and, and when you're importing when you're bringing a spirit from mexico to the u.s i'm sure there's a lot of details that that needs to be watched over and and the t's crossed and the i's dotted so absolutely and, and if you looked at my time i I may be able to share this with you in terms of uh, people understanding that our fans and, and aficionados of the product is the distillery is procedure wise. It runs the same day in and out. I mean, we're not making different cuts for different contract people, you know, contract. Uh, we don't have to do that. We make the same cuts every day. Heads and tails are the same every day. We're trying to where we spend a lot of time is trying to put in procedures, and so that everything is consistent. But the factory is pretty consistent. Where we're, we're still struggling is getting procedures in into the administrative areas, and then struggling with with growth rates that uh, have been tremendous for us. I think one year we had a fifty percent growth rate. Oh my God, you don't want to wish that on anybody. Because fifty percent is a lot of growth in one year. You, you know, you have all your suppliers that you got to tell them, hey, you got to give me fifty percent more next year. And those are the, some of the issues that you have with high growth rates. Growth creates complexity, and complexity can oh, sometimes absolutely. kill growth. And so it's that cycle of living, kind of in that in that middle part of growing with that complexity. And, and we and we're fortunate we don't have the growth that like some of these big brands have had. I mean, if you look at a brand. I won't say the name, but they're about two and a half million cases a year, and you have a twenty percent growth like they did last year. Yeah, well, you know that's four hundred thousand cases more, four hundred five hundred thousand cases more. Well, where are you going to get all that glass? Where are you going to get all that cardboard? Where are you going to get all the extra tequila when your process is already kind of maxed out? Or, or even if you're at eighty percent, you can't grow the amount that you need to grow. So fortunately, we don't have those kinds of issues, but we do have an, an issue where we're very close to our capacity now. And so we, we have to look at building another distillery. So look, I think there's such a beautiful story here. I mean, this is a story. Thank you. Honestly, I, to me, there's a story of redemption here where we see what your, your grandfather, your great grandfather, your great, great grandfather created so many years ago, company sold the land sits. And then you restore it. I keep saying this magical place because I really believe it is. You're making tequila that they would be so proud of. I mean, there's such a beautiful story of, of what you've created because there's a lot of great brands. And I've had a lot of great brands on my show. And I'm always here to support and, and to promote great brands. But Fortaleza really is the pinnacle that other brands are, are chasing after to become. Well, I, I agree with you. We... When we did start the project, we had this beautiful piece of land that's like a park, as you know. Yeah. And we, one of our plans actually is to make a botanical park here. So that's my retirement is more work. And we're going to be planting in the next two years about 250 trees, which will all have their names on it and a number of uh, more species of flat cactus and organ type cactus. And our idea is that we're going to have an organic, a botanical park here that people can visit. There may be not tequila drinkers, and we may convince them to be, though. When you're in the highlands, you see a lot more land than in the valley. You get to the valley, and, and there's a, a little more, the properties are a little closer together in the distilleries. But you walk through your 
doors, these new fresh painted doors that I can't wait to see. You walk yeah. through these doors and there's this beautiful, I mean, we said, yeah, there's a smaller distillery there, but that's been around for so long, but you've got that lookout point. You've got that lake. You've got a spot there for, for tacos. I mean, it really is a space that people it's turning into a destination space where people will want to come out and stay. There's some beautiful hotels, not too far. I mean, it, it really is going back in time to walk those streets. And it's amazing to see the property that you have your house overlooking it and the lookout point. I mean, it, it it really is beautiful. And the, and there's a back cave. Yes. <laughs> That's true. No, we're very fortunate to have uh, kept this property in. We're very fortunate to. I, I agree with you. It's one of the key elements in the identification of our brand. And when people come, they, they never forget. And we continue to improve the visitor experience. Uh, and we're hoping to have the the... It's been a project for two years, but it's coming along finally. We're putting a bar out there, a converted horse uh, trailer bar. Stefano and Kobe are working on that. And we're going to even have espresso out there for somebody who wants to do a, a shot of espresso and a shot of tequila, you know. Okay. The the fish tacos that we have going there now, we open to be open. We won't be open to public, but we'll open to tours. That are, yeah. and our tours are all by reservation only. Because we don't want to be inundated with a line. We don't want people to have an experience of going somewhere and having to wait in line. Our goal is to give people a unique experience, but also to almost a private experience. They may see other people and they will obviously, if they stay sitting, having some extra drinks at the uh, area of the reservoir, then they'll see other people too. But it, we don't want them to have like a, a cookie cutter experience. We want them to have experience that's unique to them. And they're able to feel, I mean, people come in, they, they always tell me it's like walking back in time when we come here. Yeah. And we get a lot of repeat offenders now coming back, bringing more family members for the tours. They're not yeah. necessarily uh, industry or bartender people or restaurant they people. want to experience it they want to be a part of the story and you're creating an opportunity and and you've been one of the pioneers on educating and bringing people down bringing bartenders down see this experience and and you really are bringing people in on this story and so you know i'll have links to your website and i know people can go to the Thank website you. and they can reach out uh, I, I had a miroslava did a great job on the oh, tour yeah. touring me around there i mean it really is a magical place which which i can't wait i'll be back there soon, but it really is a magical place. Again, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your friendship. From time to time, you'll send me photos of just the fields. And I mean, it just really is uh, a special compound, a special grounds of, of what you're doing out there. But thank you. And I know you're, you're a busy guy and, and there's a lot of tequila being made. Before I let you go, I do want to just make sure people can, if they want to learn more about Fortaleza, they can go to tequilafortaleza.com. And I know Correct. there's a, a couple different Instagram accounts. Destilleria La Fortaleza, I think is your, your main Instagram account. And I'll have all these linked uh, underneath in the show notes, along with the website, you've got great distribution. You know, like we keep saying, the demand is always more than the supply is right Thank now, you. but you guys are working hard, but, but there's, you know, people can reach out and can find Fortaleza as you guys really do have great distribution uh, the sponsor of my show, siptequila.com. They carry Fortaleza so they can get it. You know, you can go to siptequila.com and have a shipped right to your 
your door. Uh, but sir, man, well done. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story because this truly is a, a special brand. Well, thank you very much, Doug. And thanks all to your listeners. We appreciate your, your time and listening to the show and hearing about what we're doing here. Absolutely. Guillermo, thank you again, my friend, and I'll be seeing you soon. Thanks a lot, Doug. Cheers. Salute. Talk to you soon. Salute. That was Guillermo Erickson Sousa in Fortaleza Tequila. To learn more about the brand, you can visit tequilafortaleza.com. I'll have my affiliate link in the show notes so that you can order Fortaleza shipped straight to your door. If you're ever in the town of Tequila, I want to highly encourage you to take a tour at their distillery. A big thanks to SipTequila.com for being the official sponsor of the show. I'm Doug Price, and please drink responsibly.